calling this uh, series Defeated because um, the, the way that we have been thinking about this is, is that each of us, whether we're Christians or whether we're not Christians, we have some sort of beliefs in our mind that make a robust grasping of Jesus from the heart difficult. And those beliefs, if you study philosophy or whatever sort of field that that, that would deal with, is, um, are what people call defeater beliefs. Because when held, when belief A held, it makes belief B unholdable or untenable. And so we're looking each week at a different belief that is quite common that makes uh, belief in Jesus quite difficult. So what is the one we're going to look at today? I've titled it there on the screen. You can see it. You've probably heard it before. It's called the Multiple Roads, One Destination Defeater. How many of you ever heard that? You don't have to raise your hands. How many of you ever heard that? Yeah, something like that. You've probably heard something like it. And we're going to look at it today and uh, what Jesus has to say with it. So a few years ago, a British journalist named Christopher Hitchens wrote a book that was incredibly popular. It was on the New York Times bestseller list and sold well into this public sector. Now, Hitchens, who has recently passed away, was an outspoken opponent to all organized religion. He didn't pick favorites. He hated them all. And in his book, God is Not Great, he argued for the include not the, he didn't, sorry, he argued not for the inclusion of all religions. But he said what we ought to do is eradicate and be done with them all. Be done with them all wholesale. He reasoned that the reasoning for him coming to this judgment was that if you look at the vast history of human existence, that there has been no other thing that has been a barrier, in his opinion, to real peace and to real harmony in the world than religion. So his point, get rid of it. He points to the Spanish Inquisition. He points to the Crusades. He points to the events of 9-11. And he says, do you see what religion gets us? It gets us nothing but a fracturing of the community in the world that we live in. So let's be done with this. And you know what? He also says that here, if, if religion, if one group is saying, here is what religion is, and you must do this, and if you do, you're in, and if, you're at, if, and if you don't, you're out. He's saying that sort of mentality cripples us. Now, you might think that me as a campus minister at this point would want to rail against Hitchens and his assessment right now. But I actually want to tell you that I agree with him. Some of you are going, what? I want to tell you that I actually agree with him. And we're going to look at why and why I say that. You see, when you have any religious system that says here is what you do and you're accepted by God, you'll always have a performer's ethic. And whoever does, what you do will always be in, but to whoever doesn't, disdain or exclusion is soon to follow. So what do we make of all this? Well, this has led many to say something like this, and this gets at the heart of the defeater. There can't just be one religion, one way to God. All religions are basically going to the same place. Therefore, you need to see that all religions are equally valid. And this is why I'm calling it the multiple roads, same destination defeater. When held, it makes biblical Christianity untenable or unacceptable. Why? 
We're going to look at this. But I want you to know that in this text today, Jesus himself is saying that this defeater, the multiple road, one destination, it can't hold. It doesn't work. And it's not true. Now, for some of you that might seem brash, and I hope that you'll listen. See, how are we to hold on to what Jesus says? And how are we to relate to those who differ from us in what we believe? That's the real question. You need to know that if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian today, that this is a huge barrier to many people. I have somebody in my own family, and it's this thing right here that keeps them away from Christianity. And you also to know that if you're not a Christian today, I'm hoping that I might get your ear for just a second. And that I might respectfully present what Jesus was trying to get at when he spoke these words. So what does this text help us to see? Three things. I want to look at the implications of what Jesus has said in three main categories. First, the offense of exclusivity. The commonness of exclusivity. And then lastly, we're going to look at the hope of exclusivity. So what do I mean? Well, let's look at the text. You'll notice in verses 1 through 6, Jesus is telling his followers that he calls friends, that he calls buddies, his disciples, the folks that has followed them, that he is basically going to prepare a place for them. And if you'll notice in verse 1, what does it say? Don't let your hearts be troubled. In other words, I want you to chill. I want you to take things easy because, you see, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, that means I'm coming back. So like somebody going to prepare a vacation spot, you know, a few days early for you to go to, Jesus is saying here that I'm going because I love you to prepare a place for you and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you there to be with me. So you know what, dear ones? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be troubled. And then in verse 4, Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. And this causes Thomas, one of his followers, to say, I'm paraphrasing, "Uh, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. Therefore, how can we know the way? And this leads Jesus to make an incredibly exclusive comment. Do you see it there? He says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know how you hear those words from Jesus himself, but you must see that they rub the ears of modern people, of college students at TCU, entirely wrong. It is right here in the Word. A lot of people like Jesus. Okay? But they don't like what he's saying right here. And you need to know that. Because he's just made an incredibly exclusive comment. That's why we're talking about it today. Okay? Now, I want you to think about it like this. I want you to know why this is so hard. When I was in middle school, um, I was what they call a late bloomer. Okay? And so uh, I went out for the 7th grade uh, baseball team. And I was trying out there in the gym at Grassland Middle School. And I remember um, running wind sprints and going, Golly, these guys are fast. I mean, they're blowing by me. And then I remember no matter how hard I would hit the ball, it just would not travel as far as some of the other guys. And then I remember my arm speed. I just could not generate enough power on a throw across the base path. And I just remember going, what in the world is happening? 
And what was happening was puberty in everybody else. So their dudes were getting faster. They were getting stronger. And when the time come, yours truly did not make the baseball team. I was sadly excluded from that team. Now, I'm well adjusted, okay? I think I have a pretty good life these days, and I still love the game of baseball. But you kind of get the point. The reason that exclusion for some of us is hard to swallow is because it's hurtful. It's painful. Nobody likes to think of themselves as being excluded. And what happens when it's not middle school baseball? What happens when it deals with ideologies? Are some of you familiar with the eugenics movement in the 1920s, both here and in Europe? It really is what led to the Holocaust. And it's what led to the sterilization of many women in eastern states. Because the thought was, here are traits, here are races that are best not to reproduce. And so you would sterilize women, make them infertile, because that way they couldn't pass along the traits that they presented. You see, it's not just middle school baseball, is it? And you know what? It's actually that sort of stuff that the problem of ideologies that people recognize the problem, the offense of exclusion, because what it leads to, and all of us deep down have experienced it in some way or another, it is that exclusivity at some point when it's taken its full effect leads to different forms of intolerance And intolerance, as you well know, is worse than racism and the whole nine yards. It's sort of the cultural milieu that you're in, okay? Now look, this is what I want to get at. How does this sit with you? Does it rub you wrong? See, right now, do you feel the tension deep down that I have used exclusive language? Here is why. Because at some level, y'all, Hitchens was right. You see, when you have drawn some sort of exclusionary line, what ultimately happens is that oppression or disdain happens to those who are outside. And if you think that I'm making this up, look at your own heart. Are you ready? Here we go. Are you Greek? What do you think of people who are non-Greek? If you're non-Greek... What do you think of people who wear Greek letters? If you're somebody who would say that you are gay, what do you do with straight people? If you're straight, what do you make of people who would call themselves gay? That's that's easy. Y'all want me to keep going? No. Because all of us know that somewhere in our own hearts, we've drawn the line And we know in our own hearts, somewhere along the line, somebody's drawn the line and left us out. And so we know that exclusion is very, very hurtful. And so we don't like it. Now look, at this point, all I'm trying to highlight is the offense of exclusiveness, of exclusivity. We're going to take a look at what the gospel says here in a second. The only thing I'm trying to show you is how this rubs you wrong. And how it rubs your peers. And how it rubs this culture in the wrong way. It chafes us. But here's what I'm saying. And in verse 6, Jesus has made an exclusive statement. And it's hard for me to deal with that because I think of Jesus, I think of the long-haired hippie, right? And everybody is just 
chill and he's cool with everybody and he's cool with everything. But he makes an exclusive statement there. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? We're going to look at it. That takes me secondly to the second point. And that is, man, I left out a lot of spot spot in my sermon. That's not good, but we're going to keep moving. The commonness of exclusivity. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by this phrase, the commonness of exclusivity? Here was what I mean. I mean that drawing lines is far more common than we would think. In this text, Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms that He alone, verse 6, is the only way to the Father. We're going to take a look at a bit in a minute by what he means by that phrase, the way. But in verse 6, he does not say, ready, look at this, turn your eyes to the text, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life. No, in the Greek, if you look, the definite article, the, is there. It really is. So what do we make of this? Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, there are not many ways to the Father. Rather, if you want to know and to see the Father, you have to look at me and me alone. And you have to know that this rubs most of your folks the wrong way. Jesus is being exclusive. Listen, He is not, He is not being tolerant of all other religions. He's not. Jesus is not affirming that all paths to God are equally valid. And you know what? You're right. Because He isn't. Meaning you're right to be chafed by this. So why does this rub us wrong? I want to give you a couple illustrations to help show what I mean by the commonness of exclusivity. First, coming to TCU. Perhaps some of you have heard it said something like this. You come to TCU from all parts of the country and all parts of the world. Some of you drove down on 35. Some of you drove up on 35. Some of you came in from the east on 20 and 30. Some of you came in from the west on 20 and 30. Some of you flew in here. But you know what the big deal is? Is that you all came to the same place. And that's what's really, that's what religion is really like. We're all coming to the same place, this idea of God, but we all kind of get there through different means in different ways. Have any of y'all ever heard anything like this? You probably have. Okay? Hang with me. We're going to go a little bit more. This one's a lot more favorite of mine. Second, and it's one that a good a, a pastor that I listen to a lot, Tim Keller, he points out in an illustration that a British missionary who lived in India, his name is Leslie Newbigin, tells this story. He says living in India, he would hear this a lot. It's an illustration of the blind men and the elephant. Have you all ever heard this? It goes something like this. It's that there are several blind men and they come upon an elephant. And in this illustration, the elephant represents truth and that the blind man represents the different religions of the world. So one man grabs the trunk and says... Elephants are long and narrow, not being able to see and feel the other parts of the elephant. And one man walks up to an ear and he takes a hold of it and he can't see and he rubs it and he says, Oh, elephants are soft and flimsy creatures. And yet another blind man walks up and he takes a hold of the elephant's legs and says, No, 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 elephants are thick and stocky and round like columns. And then lastly, the other guy takes a hold of the elephant's belly and goes, No, elephants are big and broad and they, they, they feel leathery. This is what elephants are. 
And so the illustration goes, that's a lot like the way that we ought to approach religion. And that is this, that each of us, each religion can't really see the whole part of the elephant. So in some way, people have some measure of grasp of truth, and in other ways, they don't. It's argued then, well, who is right and who is wrong? Some of them are right, some of them are wrong, and so it is reasoned that this is the way that we ought to understand all the different religions. No one should say that they have or they can see the complete elephant, meaning the complete truth. Now, Newbegin answers by saying this, and re- wake up for a second and put your thinking cap on. Newbegin saying this, the only way that you, that, not you, one, can see that each blind man holds only part of the elephant is if you see the whole elephant. The only way that you can see that everybody else is wrong about the truth is as if you possess the unique vantage point of seeing the whole truth. But, as Newbigin says, this is the very thing that you, person who says there's no religion, has the entire picture of truth, says that no one has got. And so Newbegin says that this is in an incredible, oppressive, and an imperialistic view of truth itself. He notes, there is an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to the knowledge which is available to fallible human beings. And as Keller points out in much more plain talk, he says... When you say that no one has a superior take on what on spiritual reality, that is a take on spiritual reality which you say is superior to everybody else's. And when you say no one should convert everybody else to your view of religious reality, that is a view of religious reality that you want the listener to convert to. It looks humble, but it's not. Do you see what this means? This means that when someone someone is arguing for total inclusiveness, which is what is motivating this statement, do you see that deep down? That there's multiple roads to one destination. We want to be inclusive of everybody. That when you say that, it actually, total inclusiveness doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And here's why. Because when truth claims are made, and the truth claim is inclusivity is king, that there, 100% of the time, there's always an exclusion. And this is because when we make a truth claim, we're drawing lines about what is and what isn't. It is a statement about reality itself. Therefore, there can be no total inclusiveness and have logical consistency at the same time. Now, that was a lot go get the mp3 when this thing's posted and re-listen to it. The point is this. Everybody, you and me, are exclusive at some point. You are. If you're going to remain consistent, you are. That's why it's so common. And why is this important? Because I want you to know that Christianity is no different than any other religion and that it's actually exclusive.
It really is. And the reason it's exclusive is because Jesus Himself has said, there's lines. And you go, oh man, this is crazy. I did not want to hear this tonight because this is just jacking with me. So what in the world can we do about it? What sort of, what sort of hope is there in the midst of all of this? Let's go to the last point. It's here that I want to examine the hope of exclusivity. Now, doesn't that sound weird that I might talk about exclusive, exclusivity being hopeful? What do I mean? Let's turn our eyes back to verses 4 and 6. Jesus is saying that you know the way to where I'm going. And listen, y'all. The way that He is referring to, it means His death. That's what it's referring to, is His death. Thomas replies, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And in that interplay, Jesus is saying, for me to go where I need to go requires death, Thomas. And the only way for you to go there too, Thomas, is guess what? Death. That's the only way it's going to happen. And it's not just physical death that it has to happen, but it has to be spiritual, complete death. And it is in this way that you go to where I go, that is to the Father. And so when Jesus says in verse 6 that He is, quote, the way, He is saying that He is the death that all of us need. Either you can die or Jesus can die. And He can die for you on your behalf. Because I want you to look at what Jesus says in verses 8 to 11. Jesus is saying here that if you want to see the Father, all you have to do is look at me. Not Ryan, Jesus. Jesus was the incarnate God Himself. He was the eternal Word made flesh. He was God with with skin on. And Jesus says, when you look at me, you see God Himself. He is the God that has come into the world. But more importantly, He is the God that has died. And that is what He's talking about when He talks about the way. Now, what does this have to do with anything with hope? Listen up. It has everything to do with hope. Remember when we spoke of the offense of exclusivity? We mentioned that when a religious system is set up where one must do such and such, and those who do it often look down on those who don't. But this is where Christianity is utterly unique. Do you know why? You see, every other religion is about what man can do to be right with God. It's about what you can do to get God to like you, to get God to look your way, to get God to be happy with you. And what Christianity is, it's about God already happy with you because of what Jesus has done and coming to you in the midst of your inability to make God happy with you. That's good news. That's good news. You see, Christianity is about God coming to make man perfect. Not about man becoming perfect by his own performance or efforts and then God finding him acceptable. 
You see, the proof is right there in Jesus Himself. The fact that God has come and has made manifest in the person of Jesus is where this deep hope is rooted. Why? It means that in Christianity and in Christianity alone, there is hope for the world. Why? Because Christianity is based on a God who dies for those whom He first excludes. In fact, it is the death of Jesus that we get the excluded because of their sin being included. It is the Gospel. We get a God dying for His enemies. And what frees you as a Christian to do the same for those who not only disagree with you, but are your enemies, is that the Lord did the same for you. And so think about it. If you're a Christian today, right? The only way that you're a Christian is not because you have done anything. It's because God in His grace has come to you and has said, you're mine. And so that's going to absolutely eradicate and erode and take your legs right out from underneath you if you think you're going to boast about that. Because what are you boasting in? Your performance? Well, let me tell you what. If that's the case, then you're not a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to be saved by grace, not by your own works. And so if you're saved by grace, then who can you look down on? Not a single person. In fact, if you're a Christian and you've been saved by grace, guess what? That means that you can die for your enemies. And that you can love them. And that you can love the people who hate you. And that you can give your life over to those who are against you. Because why? Are you ready? Because Jesus did it for you. And all the offense that you bore and that I bore against Jesus far outweighs what anybody can ever do to you. And that's good news. Because Jesus really loves sinners. And when that begins to get into your heart, you begin to see the world change. I want to share one last, one last illustration. In 361 AD, BC, in AD, the Roman Empire saw a new emperor. His name was Julian. And his moniker was the apostate. I don't know if you know what an apostate is. That's not the same as an apostle. An apostate is somebody who leaves the faith. And the reason that he was labeled Julian the apostate because he was trying to bring Rome back from its, uh, its early Christian roots back to the gods of the Roman sort of pantheon, polytheism. He wanted to bring folks back. He was trying to restore, as it were, old Rome. And in one place, he wrote about the Christians in Rome and their charity. And look, this, these are his words that he wrote. He says to his officials, Why do we not observe that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that has done the most to increase atheism? Now hold on. Atheism in that sense is away from the polytheism of the day. Okay, So what is he saying? He's saying it's the Christian's care for people that's changing lives, that's upending cultures. Okay, When the impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well, ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Do you see what Julian was saying? He was saying, that the absolute culture was being upended because of the way that Christians were loving not only their poor, but those of the city who were not of their own. They were loving the outsiders. Y'all, that's awesome. That is awesome. 
the Roman emperor knew what the early church knew. That is, in Christianity, you get the power to love your enemies and love those who hate you. You have the power to reach out and truly love those who are against you. You're able to love without hubris and arrogance, without scorn or disdain, without oppression and violence, because at its heart, it's a king who came and died for his enemies. And those enemies were you and me. Those of us who were most deserving of exclusion. Listen to what Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of God, by the blood of Christ. We have been included. And this destroys when remembered and lived out any sort of pride. In fact, it promotes service, love, and a giving up of oneself for those who not only disagree with you, but for those who hate you. There it is. The all roads, one destination thing, it just doesn't hold. It can't hold. And the hope is the Gospel. The hope is the Gospel. The hope is the Gospel. Let's pray. God, thank You for this time. Please take these things and make them real on our hearts. We ask, O Lord, for those of us that know You, that we would remember humility and love and care and concern. And that we remember what it means to be an outsider and to be brought near by the blood of Jesus. And how that shatters all pride. How it shatters all arrogance. And how it shatters all forms of disdain from people who don't look, live, and love like us. How it brings humility, O Lord. Would You show us that? Would You help us to see the beauty of Jesus even now? And we ask this in Your name. Amen.